Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Lead Pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. I'm just waiting for some of y'all to smile. Okay, there we go. We can continue now. Smile goes a long, long ways, you know? Goes a long ways. Hey, um, next week, next Sunday, our next service is going to be different uh, than kind of what, what we normally do. Um, one of the things that's going to be different is this. Uh, is Ky- Kyler, are you here? There he is. Um, we, we get together on Mondays to plan worship experiences and sometimes we're planning out in advance and one of the worship experiences that we've been planning for a while is, is next Sunday's uh, worship experience. It's just going to be a great day to celebrate uh, with giving thanks to God for incredible things. We're going to share in communion. We're going to share in, in baptism. We've got some folks that are professing their faith in Christ publicly. Uh, we're going to share stories, lots of stories of what God has allowed us to partner with him in and ministry just some really cool stuff and on that board um, there's uh, Kyla wrote up there homily for those of you who don't know homily is a message it's like the the sermon and and so it started out with half a homily is where, where Kyra gave me, was going to give me about half the time I normally get and then the next week it was a fourth of a homily and then it was a 16th. I think now like it's a 1, 128th or something like this. So I, I get about 60 seconds, I think, now next week um, to share. And uh, no, I'm just kidding. It's just going to be different. So uh, some of you will just come to see that, I imagine. Um, and, uh, but today, I want us to step into uh, Ephesians chapter 4. It's where we've left off in our uh, series in Ephesians Connect. And so open your Bibles there, swipe there, whatever you do to get your, your Bible open. Open. We're continuing our series in Connect. And, and what today we're, we're looking at is connecting with God's plan to bring change into our lives. To, to sometimes the theological word is sanctify us. Um, to transform us into the, the image of, of Jesus so we become like him. But before we dive into the Ephesians 4 passage, I want you to hear from Jesus' own lips. Words that he spoke about why he came. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I, I came so that everyone would have life and have it in its fullest. Jesus wants you to have this full life. Jesus, Jesus left the place that we all want to go. He left heaven, the, the splendor and glory of heaven, to come here to give us something we didn't have. Life. Full life here and now and for all eternity. And so he came to give us something that we didn't have and that I believe we couldn't get apart from him. This, this fullness of life. He came to change things and to, to bring a pathway of change for us in the here and now. And so we're going to look at that change pathway and how the Lord revealed that pathway of change to the Apostle Paul. But before we dive into Ephesians chapter 4, I, I want to introduce you to somebody. It's a, a brother in Christ that's been hanging out with us for about a year now. His name is Marty Bernardo. Marty, if you would start heading this way. Marty understands something about the pathway of change that has flowed through his own personal encounter with Jesus, uh, his own personal experience with God, and how it has shaped and transformed his life in a beautiful way. So if you would, welcome Brother Bernardo uh, to the stage as he shares with us. Thank you, Marty. 
Thank you, Pastor Joe, for, for asking me to share my testimony. Um, it's a blessing and an honor. Um, I like to open with giving all the praise and glory to God for protecting me while I was in the midst of alcoholism. Quickly, I want to give you some important characteristics of the disease of alcoholism. It's a three-part illness which alcoholics suffer from. A physical allergy to alcohol, a mental obsession, and a spiritual malady. I'd like to just uh, touch on the allergy side of it, because some might think I should have said addiction. When I drank, my body created the phenomenon of craving, caused by a chemical change in my body immediately, just like a bee sting to someone who is allergic to bees. After 40 years of drinking, I've learned that it's a disease that tells us we're okay, but at the same time wants us dead. I'm gonna give you a quick snapshot look into my life. I had a wonderful childhood, two loving parents, an older sister, a Norman Rockwell childhood, in a small town in New Jersey. It was eighth grade when I got drunk for the first time. I hated the taste of scotch, but I kept on drinking because I liked the feeling it gave me. I didn't drink regularly in high school, but when I did, I got drunk. It allowed me to feel like I fit in. All my fears and low self-esteem walls came down. Any trouble I was in, there was always alcohol involved. In college, I drank daily, many days to excess. The effects after first year of making the dean's list, my grades continued to slip. Again, if there was any trouble, alcohol was involved. During my 20s, 30s, and 40s, alcohol caused marriage failure, career failures, business and financial failures. It divided and destroyed families, and most importantly, caused spiritual failure. It ruined my health. Six feet of my intestines were removed in my 20s. The doctors said I had the insides of a 65-year-old. No matter, I got this. Three days after being released from the hospital, I returned to drinking for decades. In 2015, I had seven surgeries in nine months. I have an artificial stomach wall. Continued to drink until my nervous breakdown in Roper St. Francis psych ward. My last night there, I cried out to God that I didn't want to end up like this. I had hit my bottom, my jumping off point, and I realized I did want to live. Good news, everyone's bottom is different. You don't have to be at death's door to recover. There are high bottom, medium bottom, and low bottom alcoholics. All can recover. In that psych ward, God answered my prayer and a peace came over me like I had never experienced before. I had been blessed with the gift of desperation. I thank God for blessing me with that gift of desperation. My sister Jody encouraged me to get right with God. I started attending church regularly and joined the men's Bible study. Some of them were here today to support me. 
I also went back to AA. I had attended AA from 2001 to 2005 and stayed sober but cheated the program. This disease is cunning, baffling, and powerful. I drank from 2005 to 2015 when the disease almost killed me. There's only three choices if you don't address your disease. Jail, mental institution, and death. I had checked the first two boxes and was only a couple months from death. I have proven to myself that only God could have relieved my alcoholism if he were sought. I have a daily reprieve from my disease based on my spiritual condition and my daily walk with God, meaning if I backslide, I will return to drinking. I need to get completely honest with myself and become willing to take a hard look at my life. Today, studying God's Word, working the 12 steps of the AA program, attending AA meetings, and having a sponsor are activities I must continue to do daily to stay recovered. Now my responsibility is to give back what was so freely given to me. The blessings God has bestowed on me and promises of the AA program are happening on a daily basis. Passing on what God has done in my life to others is the most important part of my walk with God. I want to say a special thanks to my sister Jody who never gave up on me and my sponsor Rick who is here today. I like to close with giving all the praise and glory to God for protecting me while I was in the midst of while I'm in the midst of recovering from alcoholism. I haven't done anything. God has done it all. I've just chosen to listen. Thank you. Last, last Monday, Marty collected his four-year medallion. Yeah. Yes. And so we're getting to celebrate that. Four years of, of freedom. And we're praying for more, brother. It's a blessing. One day at a time. One day at a time. God bless you. Thank you, Marty. That kind of life change is available for anyone. And your, your disease malady doesn't have to be alcoholism. And just so you know, the AA is a pathway to healing. It's a pathway to change. And truthfully, for those of you that are familiar with AA, you know that it's rooted in Christ. It was founded by Christ's followers who were desperate to see change and founded in the scriptures. Actually, some of the scripture that we're going to look at today. This is a pathway for transformation for your life and my life to, to, to be com completely changed. And I'm grateful to Marty for sharing his story into this because he, he, he gets it. Now, there's somebody else who got it and that was the Apostle Paul. He got this pathway because he personally experienced it. God transformed his life. And then God inspired him by the power of the Holy Spirit to write it down. And that's what we're going to look at today. This, this desire that Jesus has for you and I to his people to experience the fullness of life. We're going to see the pathway for that just kind of make its way out in Ephesians chapter 4. Now I want to kind of back, kind of come at this backwards. I want to start with kind of the end of Ephesians chapter 4 because 
there's a list there. And it's this list of things that you and I should be doing. And when you read it in the letter, it basically sounds like Paul is saying, okay, now, you Ephesians, you, you Christian Ephesians, do this. Sometimes we read that list that way. And you can read it in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 25. Uh, verse 25 tells you something like, well, you need to tell the truth. And telling the truth is good. And verse 26 says, don't lose your temper. You know, don't be angry, but don't sin. Verse 28, don't steal, you know, get, get a job, go to work. Uh, verse, verse 32, be kind. So there, there's this list. Now, here's a, here's a reality, and you know this. Almost every religion on the planet has lists of do's and don'ts. You know, Muhammad taught some do's and some don'ts. Buddha, Gandhi, you know, different religious leaders have taught these, these lists of do's and don'ts. So is there anything really, I was at the Citadel yesterday doing a, a wedding rehearsal. In fact, I'm going to run out of here uh, after this service to get downtown to do a wedding. But uh, the core of cadets, they have a code of conduct. You know what's on the list? Pretty much what you read in Ephesians 4. They, they, they have this, people have these kinds of lists all over the place. So what is different about this list for, for those who are, who are people of faith? You know, Because some people would say, basically all religions are the same. It's about turning bad people into good people. So it doesn't matter what brand name you use, the product's the same. And so people kind of think about faith that way and religion that way, you know. And, and so then they kind of make the jump and say, well, if that's true, then, you know, why does my Buddhist neighbor who lives better than I do, you know, why, why do I need to tell him about Jesus? If, if, if it's all kind of equal. And so the, the underlying question that I want us to kind of dig into today, is there anything distinctive about the Christian teaching on this pursuit of, of, moral, of a moral code? Because I believe there's something fundamentally different about it. And Paul talks about it. And it really is the pathway that we see where life change can happen. And so Paul almost always starts with a theology lesson before he gives you a list of things to do. And it's not going to be any different in this passage. So I want to start with verse 17. And Paul says in verse 17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must, must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He starts this way, and when he uses the term Gentiles here, he's not talking about a race of people. He's talking about anybody who was not a part of the Jewish faith. So this is anybody who wasn't part of God's covenant community who were Jewish that, that we knew about in the Old Testament. God made that connection there with them. And he's saying, these Gentiles, they, 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 they don't know Jesus. And so that's kind of the description he starts with. And then I want you to jump down to verse 19. In verse 19, he talks about, he's talking about the Gentiles. He says, they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Now that, that's the language of, of cravings. This idea of, of being greedy. It's about having sensual pleasure, being, being, being kind of hungry for these things. People who, who feel like these are uh, desires that they're enslaved to. Marty kind of talked about that, being, feeling enslaved, captive to, to alcoholism. It's, it's the person who's addicted to pornography, who it, it, the desire feels so strong. And it's, it's more than just lust. It's an escape from reality. Uh, the, uh, relieving stress, adding excitement to life. The 
person who turns to, to alcohol and, and drugs, it, sometimes it's, it, it's not because of a physical addiction. It's more the spiritual and emotional because it, uh, Marty talked about it giving you feelings that you were more in control in a public setting, that things could be different. It's a false control. And in Paul's writing, he, he, he addresses this. And in other letters, he uses a, a word. This is the Greek lesson for the day, epithumia. And epithumia is really kind of the core of sin. It's at the heart of sin, Paul tells us. In, in our English Bibles, it often gets translated as the word lust. But it really has a deeper meaning. It's not just lust related to sex. It's lust related to your soul. That your soul has this, this craving, this, this need for sex something. It's, it would kind of like being saying something that I, I, I long for and need and I can't imagine life without it. I would rather be dead than not have this in my life. And the thought of not having it produces despair. And oftentimes we, we think that it's, it's like lust for only bad things, you know. But it can be for good things. You know, some people lust after the security that comes from money. So they, they kind of get greedy for that. And when they don't have it, they get anxious and it creates stress. And that leads to stinginess. Because for them, an abundance of money makes them feel like they can be secure and satisfied. And without it, they, they feel lost. For others, it can be a greedy desire for success. Or a greedy desire for having people like them and, and for approval. I've told you before, I, I've battled with that one myself. And it's just this greedy desire for something else. And, you know, for, for a relationships or something like that. There are some, some women sometimes that I have met have had this struggle feeling like they, they need a man to kind of complete them. And so, you know, if, if you've had a boyfriend every month, a uh, new boyfriend every month since you were in second grade, this might be, you know, you. Um, it, 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 it's this, I gotta have it, I gotta have it, or I can't, I can't function. And so, the way that you kind of step into this is you ask yourself the question, what do I have to have for my life to feel good? So I feel good about myself and about my life. Again, it may not be something evil. Some people can get this way about their family. If their family's not perfectly operating, that Norman Rockwell kind of thing, you know, that all that going on, there's perfect harmony, it can be devastating to some people. And, and, and life just kind of falls apart. And so they have a greedy condition for something that's good. And Paul, Paul goes into where, this, where does this come from? Where do these cravings come from? In verse 18, Paul says, it comes because they're alienated from life with God. They're cut off from life with God. And so these cravings arise as an absence from God in our lives where they, they don't know it, but they're really seeking connection with God where they'd be satisfied and, and kind of filled up. But instead, they reject God and enthusiastically pursue these other things. Something that really will not satisfy and so their souls are kind of starving. They know they're missing something but they're trying to fill it with something else. When what we're actually searching for is Him. For His affirmation. For, for the presence of God. But in the absence of that we'll, 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 we'll use some cheap substitute to kind of fill that in. 
in his incredible writings, uh, St. Augustine uh, wrote uh, a collective work called Confessions. And when you read and study the life of St. Augustine, one of the things you discover about him, he's kind of a party animal, probably even had an addiction to sex before he came to Christ. And he wrote these words. He said, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Until we find our rest in you, O God. And so Paul realizes this question exists about this alienation. And so where, where does that come from? How do we get alienated from God? If you keep reading verse 18, it says they're alienated from life in God because of the ignorance that's in them. Because we're, there's this ignorance, we, which means, it doesn't mean you're stupid, it just basically means you don't know the truth about God. You don't really see how incredibly beautiful, you don't, you don't see the glory of God, you don't see his, that he's lovingly kind, you don't see his, his tender mercy, you're cut off, you're, you're ignorant of him. And we don't know, we don't realize that we were created for a relationship with that God, the real God, we, we have him pegged somewhere else and so we're missing who God really is. And Paul tells us that our ignorant condition is caused by something else. You keep reading. It says, they are alienated from life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to what? A hard heart. Because our hearts have been hardened. It's not that God isn't near. It's not that God can't be seen. It's their, their hearts are too hard to see him. And some of you remember what it was like when you came to really see God for the first time. When the gospel broke through and you really got to see him. And you realized his glory has been all around you. But because of your dead heart, you were missing it. Your, your spiritual eyes were blind. You know... That, that explains, you know, experiences that, that many of us have, you know, how two people that we respect, smart people, can look at something and see something totally different. I remember when I was a freshman at College of Charleston, my biology professor um, basically denied the existence of God. And I respected him. He was a smart, bright man. And then there were others who I, I respected who, who, you know, believed in God and trusted God. And I did too. But th th there was this kind of tension there about, about what's going on. I understand now that my professor was cut off. He was alienated because his heart had been hardened. He could not see the beauty of God even though there was biological evidence in front of him that actually pointed to God. And, and this, this kind of bothered me. You know, I thought, these are two smart people, multiple smart people looking at the same thing. But the reality was, it was about the condition of their hearts. It, it was more about what was going inside. Everybody's kind of favorite uh, philosopher, uh, Frederick Nietzsche, Christians kind of point to him a lot, non-Christians point to him a lot. He was recognized as an atheist, but in his work Beyond Good and Evil, he said some things that really point to this condition. He said this, he said, the idea of objective human beings who are just disinterested seekers in truth is crazy. It's just, it's ridiculous. The human heart is too insecure to ever ever be able to handle the truth. Anybody ever, did, did you see Officer or Gentleman, you know, Jack Nicholson? I'm not going to try to do the impression, but you, he's saying you can't handle the truth. 
You and I can't handle it. There's, there is this, he says, a natural hatred and fear that we're afraid to really come face to face with the truth. He goes on to kind of give an example of what that. He says, we revise our memories to fit the story of ourselves that we want to believe. We say to ourselves, there's no way I could have ever done. Have you ever said that? You look back at your life and say, there is no way I've ever done that. He, he says, there's no way I can ever, it says our pride. And it's not long before the past we remember is the past that we want to be true. Now, we all know that, that nations and cultures kind of rewrite history so they look good. You know, you read two different history books written in two different nations and it looks at the same events and tells them totally differently. Well, what Nietzsche is saying is we all do that. Every one of us individually looks at our lives that way. We, we see a distortion here and we try to mold it to fit our preferences and we try to do that with God. We try to avoid who he really is to make him into what we want him to be. And sometimes what we want him to be is not there. Sometimes that's just the truth about some of us. But what's fascinating to me is sometimes those very people, when they finally see the beauty of the gospel un unfolded in front of their eyes, they start seeing God everywhere. That's why some of you who have skeptical friends and you, they say, you know, I, I can't see God. And you're thinking, how can you not see God? Uh, and it's frustrating a little bit. Well, it's because of a, of a, of a heart condition. Their eyes are, are closed and they don't understand who he really is. And so what Paul is telling us, and I just want to kind of summarize this by pointing out what Paul is saying our problem is. Our problem is this. We have ignorant dead hearts that choose to reject God. Our hearts are ignorant, cut off from knowledge of God, and they're dead because of that. And because of it, we, we choose to, to reject God. We, we're alienated from God and we're drawn to sin. We can't, we can't see God because our hearts are hardened and deadened. And so here's, here's the uh, problem that Paul is saying the Gentiles, these people apart from Christ, are facing. Now, it wasn't because Gentiles are not religious. You know, humanity has always been religious. Human beings of, of all nationalities and creeds have always had a kind of a religious quest. But the religious tendencies of the human heart are not, not so, oh God, I love you so much. Oh God, I'm so delighted in you. Religious kind of quest uh, is an effort to use God. To try to get something out of God. Some of y'all know the story of the carrot and the horse. Um, back in medieval times, there was this farmer, and uh, he, he farmed basically to stay alive. And one of the vegetables that he farmed were carrots. And he went out to his, I get, do carrots grow in a carrot patch? What do carrots grow in? A row? patch, a row patch, we'll call it a row patch. He, he, he went out to his carrot place in his garden and he, he starts pulling up some carrots and he comes across this one magnificent carrot like he's never, it's a six foot long carrot, it's beautiful and he thinks this is a carrot fit for a king and then he thinks 
Oh, my king. I love my king. He's wonderful. He's, he's incredible. He's a benevolent king. And so he arranges to, to an audience with the king. And he goes and he presents his carrot. And he, he says, oh, king, this was, I, when I dug this up, I thought of you. I thought, do you deserve a carrot like this? And the king was just moved by the, he knew this guy was dirt poor. And that he was giving him the best that he'd ever had and seen. And so the king was just moved. And he talked to one of his officials and found out where this guy lived and realized that he owned like thousands of acres around this guy. And he said to, to him, he said, you have moved my heart. And I have just fallen in love with the beauty of your gift and your heart. And so these thousands of acres around you I own, I'm deeding them to you today. They're, they're yours now. And I'm going to send some servants to help you work it. And so one of his officials in the court hears what's going on and he thinks, dude, if the king will rock out thousands of acres and servants for a carrot, what would he do for a really cool gift? And he thinks and he thinks, I'm going to get the king the best horse alive. And he knows of this kingdom a little bit further out who has the best horses. And he goes to the best stable in that land and he gets the best horse in that stable. Spends every cent he's got. He comes back and brings it to the king and says, oh king, you're the most bestest king I've ever had. I love you king dude, you know, your kingdom. And he, he, he says, and because of that I found this horse and it's worthy of a king. And so here's the horse king. It's for you. And he stands there thinking the king's just going to, you know, wow him. But the king was also wise. And he knew what was going on. And so the king said to this, this guy, you were here on carrot day, weren't you? And you saw what happened on carrot day. Here's what you don't understand. That day, that dirt poor farmer gave me that carrot. You gave yourself that horse. See, we, we, try to, we try to do that with God. That's what religion is. Religion is this attempt to try to manipulate God to say, God, I'm going to do this, so then you got to do that. You know, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care. And, and we miss the beauty of God. And that's why, that's why our faith seems to break down so often. Is be, it, we, our faith so often is an attempt to control God. And the moment we do that, all we're doing is focusing on ourselves. It's just we become self-interested, self-focused, and we, we only want to pay God any attention for the blessings that we think he will give us. You know, God, I'm going to do this, and because I do this, you got to take me to heaven. We, we, we have this mindset. Paul says in verse 24, he says that you and I were created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. See, what God desires is for us to live in, in true righteousness. It truly wanting to be in a right relationship with him and, and, and holiness. That's, what, that's God's desire. We're created in his likeness and we don't, we don't see that. See, God, God's not righteous just because, you know, he thinks it's a good thing to be. You know, because, you know, somebody's making him be righteous. That's who God is. It, it's who we're created to be. He, he loves righteousness. But our, our problem is because we're ignorant of that God, 
Because we're ignorant of that, our heart doesn't really want God. So what, what's the solution? Well, Paul tells us a twofold solution in this passage of Scripture in, in Ephesians. And this, this really has to do with what can bring about change. The kind of change that Jesus said, I've come to give life fullest. Well, I like to think of it as kingdom change. And Paul is going to point out for us that how that change comes. In verse 21, he says this, Assuming that you have heard about Him, speaking of Jesus... And we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, people who are far smarter than me who study the writings of Paul, commentators, have, have, have told me, I've read this on more than one occasion, that when Paul is referring to Jesus Christ, he most often refers to him as Christ. You read, read the letters of Paul, you'll see Christ showing up a lot. And that when, when he uses that phrase, he's kind of talking about the theology, the, the depth, those kinds of things. When he uses the word Jesus like he does here, when he uses that name, Jesus, what he's talking about is the story, the life of Jesus lived on the earth. The, the baby that came from heaven that was born in a manger to into poverty, who lived a sinless life, who, who began teaching with all authority like nobody had ever seen before, healing, um, and then went to a cruel cross and died a sacrificial death so that you and I could be forgiven of our sin. When he uses Jesus, he's talking about the story of God. The story of Jesus. What we, what we think about as the gospel. And what Paul says here is that we need, is we need to know him. And so our need here is this that brings changes. We need a new knowledge of God that comes to us only through the story of Jesus. That's what he's saying. You got to know him. You got to know the truth is in Jesus. You got to know that story. Because in the story of Jesus, we see the beauty of God. We see the glory of God. We, it gets revealed through the life story of Jesus. That's why this book is not primarily a reference book. It's a story. It's a narrative of God. And it points, everything in it points to the, the life of Jesus. And it, it's about you and I getting swept up into the, the story you know, I, I love epic kind of movies. Uh, a couple of Fridays ago, Kathy and I went to see um, Midway. Um, not a bad flick. And in the story, there, there's this one character, I can't remember his name, um, but he, he, he's kind of squeamish. He doesn't really want to be in the military, especially during World War II kind of thing that's kicking off here and these battles and stuff he's heard about. And he kind of goes into a fray and all he wants to do is get out. Um, but then he ends up being in this epic battle of Midway. And he is forever changed. He sees human courage like he's never seen before. He's in a battle like he's never seen before. And he comes out of it completely transformed. Now you don't know about it until you get to the end of the movie. And they tell you what really happened to all these people. And he went back in battle after battle after battle. Engaged throughout that in the Pacific area. A theater of that time of that war. And he was just forever ever changed. And the truth is, when you and I get caught up in the, the real story of Jesus, the story of who God is as revealed in Christ, it, it transforms us. We're caught up in that, the, the courage of Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the power of Jesus. And we just want to, it causes us to run into relationship with God. 
It causes us to transform because we, we can see nothing better than Jesus. It's the greatest story of human courage. And see, by, by not connecting to that, you know, when we, when, we, when we don't do that, we will not change fundamentally. Temptations will still have power over us. But when we see there's a greater power in Jesus, we want to live in that. When you discover how much power is available for your life to change in Jesus, you love that. And so you begin to love this God-transforming story about forgiveness. So what overcomes our ignorance is encountering this glory of God. Verse 23, Paul tells us there's something else we need to change before, even before that. He says in verse 23, we need to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. We, you and I have to have spiritual renewal. In, in fact, when you read this letter to Paul, if you'll just sit down and read it a couple of times through, you'll notice that's something that Paul prays for multiple times for, his, for the church at Ephesus, is that the eyes of their hearts, that their minds would be open so that they could see God. And so what Paul is saying here that we need, we need renewal in our spirit so our heart can grasp this new knowledge. Only God can do this. How many of you have ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody ever been? I mean, it's like a worshipful experience when you walk up to the rim of the Grand Canyon for the first time. I, I could stand there just kind of all day. Now, you could take a blind person up to the edge of the rim, point them into the direction of that. They could stand there all day, and it would mean nothing to them. Because their eyes are not open to it. But if there was a way to heal their eyes in that moment and they could see that spectacular view, it would, it would overwhelm them. See, the, the same is true for us when it comes to God. We have to have our, our eyes open. We have to be able to see the beauty of God. And we can't do that on our own. God, God does that for us. And so kind of just a one-sentence way that I think about this, this transforming power, this direction, this pathway that Paul was telling us about, that kingdom change comes is simply this, is God's Spirit using God's story to open my life to God's glory. It's the Spirit of the living God opening my mind to finally be able to see the beauty and wonder and glory of God found in Jesus so that I would be able to see all of that glory just through the story of Christ. And that's, that's this pathway that Paul lays out. And it's only when we saturate ourselves in the beauty of that that change can come. So, if it starts to happen, how will I know it? What, what, would, what would that kind of life change really begin? How would I know that I'm experiencing, I'm moving through this, having the, the eyes, my, my spiritual eyes open to my mind so I can see that I'm being caught up in the story? Well, there, there are a few things that do that. Now, when Jesus was telling his disciples how to pray uh, about this kingdom kind of change, he, he said, I want you to always, when you pray, I want you to pray uh, in reference to the kingdom. And so he kind of starts his prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and kind of ends his prayer in Matthew chapter 6 with the kingdom of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done. 
That's the pathway to real change is God's kingdom coming. And I want to quickly just kind of run through what I think of as five indicators where you can say, this is kingdom change coming in my life. This, it's, it's kingdom change that's happening. It's not some, some, some pseudo change. It's, the, it's kingdom change. Indicators. Indicator number one is this. Kingdom change rewires your desires. Kingdom change rewires desires. It starts at, at, at that level. See, Jesus change, it leads you to, to see the truth, to, to want the truth, to, to long for the truth. Now, one of the, one of the biggest substitutes in our day, I think, for real kingdom change is moralism. Moralism is this idea that... You know, it's, it's teaching people that what you, what you do is you got to get your externals modified. Kingdom change is about the internal. About what's going on inside. It's about character. Um, let me see if I can explain how this plays out. Uh, you don't want your kids to lie. Okay? None of us want our kids to grow up and, and, and be liars, what we know as liars. And so we do things with our kids to, to deter them from lying. We'll, we'll say, okay, now if you lie, you're going to get caught in your lie and people aren't going to trust you, so nobody's going to like you. There's going to be punishment to it. And so there'll be rejection. And so some people, you know, you, we kind of parent that way. Other, others parents, parent this way. You're a still. Stills don't lie. Still tell the truth. And so you kind of use this idea of pride to, to, to manage their behavior. And, you know, you can Christianize it. You know, you can say if you lie, you're going to die and go to hell. That's kind of the Christian version of it. Um, but it, it's basically, it's not pointing out the beauty of truth found in God. The beauty of, of, of what it's like to, 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 to live in truth, that you were created for this. So what we do, because we're, we're kind of cut off from that beauty ourselves, we try to teach our kids that, that, that with lying there comes punishment and rejection. Or it, it, it's rooted in pride. We try to motivate that way. And you can, you can do that with just about any particular issue. But see, the, the problem is... Is because we don't really see the beauty of truth. We don't, we don't parent that way oftentimes. And see, verse 24, in what Paul writes here, he says, we're created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And what that's saying is Jesus motivates you a different way. He doesn't motivate you through pride. He doesn't motivate you through fear of punishment or rejection. He just, he just holds up and says, this is what God is like. He's beautiful to, 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 to run after. So again, God doesn't tell the truth because he's going to get punished. It's just, it's who he is. And the way that outward change really is impacted over the long haul is when something changes on the inside. But if all you ever do is focus on the externals, it'll kill you. In Matthew chapter 7, one, one chapter over from that teaching about praying that, that Jesus did, he's talking about um, diseased tr trees that have diseased fruit and healthy trees that have good fruit. And I'm just going to kind of illustrate it this way. Anybody ever had a rose bush in your yard die? Now, if you want roses the next year in that spot, what do you got to do? You got to dig that sucker up and get you a new plant in there. The method of running down to Harris Teeter, buying some stemmed roses, and taping them to your dead plant? Exactly. That's what moralism is. 
It's trying to tape something on, something that's dead. Remember that's what Paul said, we got these hard dead hearts? You, you can't just paint something on there. It's got, it's got to start from the desire. And, and kingdom change begins there. Kingdom change also an indicator is kingdom change begins with sight. It begins with seeing God for who he really is so that you can delight in him. It's only when you really begin to see the beauty of the gospel that kingdom change transformation will, will happen. And so here's, here's the deal. This is why we're going to keep talking about Jesus and the story, same stories of Jesus and, and the beauty of the gospel. It, Many of us kind of grew up in a, in, a, in a culture, a Christian culture, where we thought that, that the gospel was the doorway that you walked in and ta-da, everything's good. And then we want to kind of forget about the gospel and we want to study all the really deep stuff now. Give me some of that deep stuff. There's nothing deeper than the gospel. There's, it's, 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 not just, it's not just, you know, the starting block that you use to dive into the pool. It's the whole pool. It's, it's everything. And we have to keep going back to that. That's what Paul is saying here. If you want to see life change come, you've got to keep looking at the beauty of, of Jesus. The beauty of the gospel story rooted in Jesus. In verses 21 and 22, Paul says this. He says, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, put off your old self. It's the only power by which that can be put aside and something new can be put on. There's no other power that can do that. It's only the focus on Jesus to see Jesus will you be able to put off your old self and put on the new self. It's the beginning and it's everything in between. It's not, you know, just that, you know, you're saved from the penalty of sin and you get to go to heaven. It's the power to overcome sin now. It's the power to overcome temptation. And so that's why, that's why you and I must go back and just saturate ourselves in the Gospels. Just read them over and over and over. Study Jesus Please study. Don't study Jesus like you were a seminary student only. Where you get in there and want to see all the details. How many of you have ever seen a beautiful East Coast sunrise? Anybody? You ever just sat there like this? I mean, it's just jaw-dropping. It's amazing. Study Jesus like you would study that. Pay attention to Jesus that way. Look for the beauty and the glory and, and the overwhelming power of something like that because real change, lasting change, kingdom change begins with that kind of sight that helps you see the beauty of Jesus. Number three, indicator. Kingdom change is reactive, not proactive. It's reactive, not proactive. M most of us think, man, I'm a, I'm a proactive kind of person. When it comes to being changed and transformed by the power of the gospel, you can't be proactive. All you can do is respond to the grace of God. All throughout Paul's letter, this letter and his other letters, Paul talks about, you know, you're being forgiven in Christ. In verse 32, he said, God in Christ forgave you. Verse 30, he says, you were sealed. That, that means it was settled. It was, your salvation is guaranteed for the day of redemption. It's done. Kind of the, the $100 theological term is gift righteousness. 
your righteousness, your ability to love God, to follow God, to live, is, is a gift itself. Not just, not just your salvation, but your capacity to even live a changed life. Now, every other religion in the world says this. If you do a certain thing, you will be accepted. Jesus says, I have done it all and I accept you. Respond to that in love. That, that's the difference. See, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9, a few chapters earlier, Paul says this. For by grace, for by grace, for by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift from God. It's not of works. It's not anything that you could do so that you can't boast. All you can do is accept it. All you can do is receive it. All you can do is respond to it. You can react to the grace of God. You can't be, be proactive about it. If, if you try a you know, program proactive method of pursuing God, all you're, that's work focused, all that really is is self focus. That's, that's all about you. That's back to the carrot horse story. It's, it becomes all about you. And you can only begin to love God holistically, sincerely when you do it freely. When you realize that, you know, Jesus is, the, Jesus is more concerned with changing you and transforming your life than you are. And he, he just invites you to love him. And for some of you, hearing this reality that God cannot. I know you're saying, there's something God cannot do? Yes. God cannot love you more than he does right now. It doesn't matter whether you're still battling pornography whether you're still stuck in, you know, being worried to death about things, not trusting God to get you through it, you're failing at your Christian disciplines, you're trying to read your Bible every day, you're not, God can't love you anymore even if you hit all those things right. Even if you hit a home run every time you step up to the plate. God can't love you anymore. And maybe for someone here today, you just needed to hear that and, and that's all that matters. For you, you needed to know that. You know, one of the things that we, we forget is, you know, I love, I love it when people talk about, I just want to live the victorious life. The only way you're going to live victorious life is in Jesus. Living through you, looking, looking at his beauty. You can't earn it. You can't be proactive really about it. Now there are some ways you can arrange your life to receive it more, to react to it, to respond to it. But you can't make it happen. Fourth indicator of kingdom change is this. It's about a personal relationship, not program religion. It's about a relationship. Verse 30 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You jump over to chapter 5, the beginning of it in verses 1 and 2. It, Paul writes, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. See God as Father. Imitating that. Obey out of understanding He's your dad. Be, be like Him. And then he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us. You, you can't even love unless you're walking in, in, in knowledge that Jesus loved you. And so I hope what you see here at the end of chapter 4, the beginning of chapter 5, what Paul is saying is the only way that change is going to come into your life is through a personal relationship with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You've got to walk with Him. Kingdom changes is intimately personal and it is connected to the person of God. It's not programmed. 
It's, that's what your heart has to turn to. Uh, again, I love, I love epic movies. One of my favorite all-time epic movies is The Last of the Great Mohicans. And in that storyline, there's this, this lady who encounters this Native American. And at first, she's put off by him. But then this guy risks his life multiple times, even coming to a place where he is willing to sacrifice himself so that she could be set free. And it complete, she's undone by it. It changes her and her opinion of this guy. And she falls in love with him. And that's, the, that's really the, the story of the gospel. And somebody says, well, dude, I would change too if somebody loved me like that. He did. He loved you better than that. He loved you more than that. More than any epic story on this planet or any, any sacrifice that any other human being's ever done. Jesus loved you more. And he displayed it on the cross. He, he, he showed it that way. See, for change to come, for you to grow in your faith, it's got to be a, a, a relationship. For, for, for you to have spiritual fruit, you, you got to, you've, it's, it's going to only come through. I, I'm, I'm going I'm to say something without saying anything. So you got to listen really carefully. In a, the physical offspring of human beings does not come because people are normally thinking about a baby. They're thinking about intimacy. And there is this physical fruit, this physical offspring that comes about because of the intimate relationship between spouses. When, when you read about spiritual fruit in the scriptures, the only way spiritual fruit comes is through an intimate relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It doesn't get here any other way. It is only born that way in your life. That's the only way change comes is through a personal, intimate, abiding relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the only way that that comes. It's a byproduct of that, of that intimacy that you have. You can't walk around saying, patience, patience, I'm going to get me some patience. It, it won't come. It only comes through an intimate relationship with the patient one. That's the only way it shows up. Verse 32, Paul writes these words in, from Ephesians 4. He says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. How? As God in Christ treated you. You can't do it apart from Jesus. You can't do it apart from that relationship. Everything flows from that. Last indicator, I'll be quick. Kingdom change targets totality, not tweaking. If you want to know, is kingdom change really happening in my life? You know, it, you got to think about, if you look at that list that Paul gives us at the end of chapter 4 there, he gives us all these things. There's, he talks about communication and relationships and sexuality and materialism and caring for the poor and not stealing and, you know, how you treat your boss and employees and marriage and every, in other words, every area of your life is addressed. And this is the deal. When your life comes in contact with the beauty and glory of God, 
the living God. It's going to impact you totally. Now, it will come at different rates. Some parts of your life will transform faster than others. But it's going to be a holistic, total, kind of total transformation is going to begin to happen. And so, here's some indicators that maybe you're not experiencing kingdom change. If, if, you're, if you're showing up at church and saying, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm giving a little bit on Sundays now. Putting a little money in the plate when it comes by. But you're cheating on your taxes next week? Well, not next week, but maybe. Or, or you're saying, you know, I'm really getting a handle on this, this anger problem. It's really been wrecking relationships. And I, so I'm, I'm doing better in relationships. But you're, you're, still, you're still sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend? That's tweaking. It's not total. When, when, you're, when you're captured by the power of God, kingdom change comes in and it, it begins to touch every aspect of your life. Different rates for different points of your life, but all of it. it, it you know, when, you, when you pray, God, fill me, how would you fill half of this room with water? You, you can't do it. You can maybe compartmentalize, and that's what most Christians try to do. We try to compartmentalize the glory of God impacting our lives. You can't do it. And that's why most of the time the change that you get, Marty talked about a 40-year battle. He won some, he lost a bunch. Because he was trying to change apart from the beauty and glory of God. And so he cried out to the living God, realizing that was all he had left. It's not going to happen by you controlling it in little tweaks, minor increments. The God of the universe, who's filled with glory and beauty and wonder and awe, wants your life to change. Jesus wants to give you full life. But he only does it in totality. Pray with me, okay? Jesus, we come to you. We come as Paul led us there. We don't want to live lives of moralism. We don't want to live lives, oh God, that are just simply about keeping the rules. We want to see you, Jesus, in all of your splendor and glory. We want to be drawn to you. We want the eyes of our hearts and minds open. And maybe you're here today and for the very first time, you're, you're like I was when I was 16 years old. I had heard about Jesus most of my life, but one day... God opened my eyes to see. And maybe he's doing that for you today. And maybe right now where you're at, you want to do like Marty did. You just want to cry out in God and say, God, save me. God, I can't do it on my own. I've tried it. I've blown it. I need you, Jesus, to be transformed, to be saved. I see your beauty now. I see your glory. I see the power of your life, Lord Jesus. I believe that what you did was for me so that I could be yours forever. And so I choose right now to repent, to turn away from trying to do it myself and I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to follow you. I want that life, God. Many of you are here today and you've tried to pursue change in Jesus but you've tried to do it apart from the gospel. 
apart from the story of Jesus. You've tried to do it through moralism or through some code or pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And today, you just want to come to, to the Lord and say, God, thank you. Thank you. I, I'm going to quit working. I'm going to quit trying to boast in my faith. I'm just going to boast about Jesus and what he's done for me. And you're going to rest. Just rest in him. And the Bible says when you do that, you will see the power of transformation begin to show up in your life. And so, Jesus, we come now. We come because we desire to, to leave this place never the same. We don't, we don't ever want to go back. We want to be just enthralled by the beauty of who you are. Our hearts captured. We don't want to go back. We never want to be the same, Lord Jesus. And we know because you're opening our minds, you're opening our sight. We know that will never happen apart from you. And so we just come to worship you now. We come to worship you with our whole being, with our resources we're giving to you. We're bringing our hearts to you. We're rededicating our lives to you. We just come, Jesus, knowing we never want to be the same. And Jesus, it's in your name that we seek these things in prayer. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.